You're listening to Accelerate Churches Podcast, located in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us. We pray you leave inspired, and this message helps you build your faith. We hope you enjoy this word from our lead pastor, Ernest Grant II. On Accelerate Church, can we make some noise one time? Anybody excited about Homecoming Sunday? Woo! Man. Man, I was so, that, that, that song, Reckless Love of God, always takes me out in the sense that, uh, you know, God had just reckless abandonment coming, at, coming after us as it pertains to his own self-care and safety. Um, and I'm just so grateful for that, for a, someone that's willing to pursue after us. And um, so I'm thankful for that, man. My name is Pastor Ernest Grant. I had the privilege of serving as the lead pastor of this eight-week-old church, Accelerate Church. So grateful for uh, all those who have come today to our homecoming Sunday. I think that we have have some awesome things planned for you after the gathering. And uh, I'm just so happy that you're here. No matter where you are on the spiritual pendulum, uh, we want to be the type of church that comes alongside you because we believe that you can belong before you believe while you figure everything out. Um, And we want to be a movement that creates moments for people to meet Jesus. And that just means creating spaces like this one right here so that uh, people can come to meet him. And ultimately, we want you to know God as as Katrina said, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. So uh, if this is your first time here, we would love to get uh, formally acquainted with you. So do us a favor, uh, text ACTV to 94000. Um, if you can fill out our Connect card, uh, and if you fill that out and take it to the uh, gathering or the Next Steps table after the gathering, uh, we'll make sure that we get you a gift as a token of appreciation for you being here today. So excited about that. Also excited about Crew Week. Woo! You know, one thing we know is that at this church, we want to build community. We don't think that it's good for you to do life alone. And uh, one of the most important things for you to do is meet other people who are going in the same spiritual direction. And you'll have the opportunity to do that from November 7th through 13th. We have these things called crew meetups, bowling, poet, pottery uh, in Philly and in Jersey. I want to encourage you to, uh, you can do it one of two ways. Uh, you could text ACTV to 94,000. Guess, you, you guessed it. Uh, and there's a link on there. You can click on that and it will send you, uh, it, you can click on the link that says Crew Week and we'll send you the link. Or you can go to our website, acceleratechurch.tv backslash Crew Week. Um, and we want to encourage you to that end. So uh, we want to get to know some people. We're actually launching our crews, which are groups of like eight to 10 people that get together over some, over, uh, some Bible studies. Some are going to be more activity-based. Whatever it is, uh, we're going to start that in January so we can get the whole church connected with some relationships. Amen. Anybody excited about crews in here today? Few of us. Four of us. All right. All right. All right. Few of us. Okay. So listen, I was really, um, really racked my brain this week and I was trying to figure out a homecoming message. Um, I really struggled. I don't think I accomplished the goal. But what I do think God did was gave us a message that's going to hit close to home about our motives and finding out why we do what we do. So why don't you join me, if you will? I'm in the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 3. Book of Ruth, you you continue playing. Ruth, chapter 3, it just says this. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be well taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with him and his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing the barley on the threshing floor. Wash, shout out to washing, put on some perfume, oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor. 
But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. And then he will explain what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say and went down to the threshing floor. Sorry, get my Bible. And did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. And after Boaz ate and drank and was in good spirits, he went to lie down and at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lied down. And at midnight, Boaz was startled and turned over. And there was lying a woman at his feet. And she and he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. She replied, take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then she said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in town know that you are a woman of noble character. And yes, it is true that I am your family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now, lie down until morning so that so she lay down until until morning, but got up before it was dark. And then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it. And when she had held it out, she shoveled six measure of barley. He shoveled six barley barley into her shawl. And she went into town and she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done, and she said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things will go. He won't, for he won't rest unless he resolves this matter. That ends the reading of God's word. Why don't we pray together? Father, um, Father, we just come to you in this moment, Lord, just saying thank you for this another day, for your goodness and mercy that has been given to us. Lord, thank you that uh, you pursue us, Lord, with this uh, love that uh, has no regard for itself, but will do anything to save us. And so, Lord, we honor you. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody that agree with that say, amen, amen. Other than The Simpsons, Law and Order SVU is the longest-running syndicated TV show in American history. Can you believe that? Uh, with over 21 seasons and over 500 episodes, it has done literally the impossible by thriving when many other shows fizzle out after a few episodes. In case you're unaware of what uh, Law & Order SVU is, it's a fictionalized account of the New York Police Department, and they literally take headlines out of the paper, and they pull it, and, they, and the show producers begin to write about it. And, and one thing you'll understand about the show is the first thing that the investigators want to know it, when a crime occurs is they want to understand the motive, the motive informs them on why the crime happened. In other words, it gives them an understanding for the actions that occur. And let me just say to you today, church, that the same uh, principle that applies to the fictional drama applies also to our factual lives. That it is important to question your motives. Why do you do the things that you do? 
Why do you say the things that you say? What are or what is the reason behind the decisions that you make? And I'll, I'll suggest to you that this is one of the most important skills that you can develop. Few things are more important than being able to identify your motives and understand other people's. Are y'all hearing me today, church? And so what we see here in our passage, oh, well, let me get to this. So there's a lot of wisdom in this statement. I'm going to tell you why. And whether you're a Christian or not, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what uh, one of our prophets says. This is what he says in Jeremiah 17:9. He said, the heart is deceitful more than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? What he's communicating in that passage is that we have the ability to convince ourselves into believing things that are untrue. And that particularly comes from our actions. So our motives are the underlying reason behind our action. Can I come down your street for a second? Uh, When you spoke up in that meeting not so long ago, what was your motive? Did you speak up so that you can look intelligent in front of your superiors or did you do it because you were trying to contribute? Um, What was the reason that you posted on social media last? Was it for self-promotion or was it to encourage someone else's faith? What, what, what is the reason that you refuse to delegate when you know that delegation is the key to your sanity? It, do you not delegate because um, you want to save your team from doing more work than they need to? Or do you not delegate because you have a control issue? You have to oversee and micromanage everything. What is the motive behind your actions? Are they pure or unpure? Healthy or unhealthy? Selfish? Self-seeking? What is your motive? And so what I hope to do today is I want to compare and contrast someone that has pure motives with someone that I believe has ulterior motives. Let me catch you up in our narrative today. Uh, this is the, the, the short story that we're reading here is the book called Ruth. It's told in uh, like this beautiful love story. And I'm gonna just catch you up here. Uh, Naomi had a husband named Elimelech and he had two sons and she had two sons. And they left this place called Bethlehem, the house of bread, because ironically there was a, a, a drought and there was no bread in the house. And so they ended up leaving Bethlehem and going to a neighboring city called Moab. Moab was a place that was morally decadent. And while they were there, her two sons ended up marrying Moabite women. We, and there's nothing wrong with marrying uh, Moabite women other than they didn't believe in the same God that the people in Israel did. And so Elimelech eventually dies. Her two sons eventually dies. Naomi is left broken, so she encourages the two daughters-in-law to leave and go back to their Moabite family. Ruth, however, the text says that she clung to Naomi instead of running away from her. Naomi declares her love for her, and the next thing you know, she goes with her on the way back to Bethlehem. They arrive in Bethlehem around the same time of as what's called the harvest season. The harvest season is when they would gather grain and they would sell it in a market or they would store it in case there was, uh, in case there was a famine. And so Ruth, being a poor Moabitess in a predominantly Jewish culture that looked down on her ethnically, asked her mother-in-law if she can go glean in the fields. Gleaning means the harvesters came by, they didn't catch any, they would not go all the way out to the corner. So Ruth would come by and basically scavenge. I'm going somewhere. Don't worry. I'm going somewhere. And so, and so she, she did that. And then she happened to glean in a field of one of Elimelech's relatives named Boaz. 
And Boaz begins taking a liking to Ruth. Now, this is good for Naomi because he's what's called the kinsman redeemer. It's an ancient Leverite law that says that the next of kin should marry one of the widows because that is how the family legacy and uh, name is secured long term. Does that make sense? And so if somebody dies and they don't have a and they don't have any kids, what they have to do is they have to marry the next of kin so that the family line can continue on. And so Ruth and Boaz begin to strike up something. We don't know if it's a bubbling relationship or whatever it is, but we know that something is occurring. So one day, Naomi looks at her daughter and she says, she says, she says uh, to her, hey, my daughter, that's so sweet, isn't it? I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. What Naomi is saying is that she knows that this is a patriarchal culture. She knows that the way that someone can establish their financial, uh, their financial livelihood is by getting married. This is so sweet, right? It, and so on the surface, initially when I read this, I was like, man, she's so sweet. She cares about her daughter-in-law's uh, financial standing, and she's, she cares about her. But I think, as I read it, that she's really trying to butter her up because she's about to send a risky text message. I think that's what's happening. So she comes up to her and she's like, yo, I'm going to play matchmaker. I'm going to be Tinder before Tinder. Okay, yeah, I've been married a while. I ain't been on Tinder, but you know what I'm saying? I figured that at work. And so she goes on there and she says, she says, don't you know that guy Boaz? You know that dude Boaz, right? Uh, well, presumably he's going to have some workers. And tonight they have harvested all the grain. And I heard that they're going to be in the barn on the threshing floor. Harvesting the grain. Just in case you know, I'm going to give you context and I promise you I'm going to preach. What they would do was they would, they would have the grain that grows out of the ground and how they, would, uh, how, they, how they would separate the grain from the bottom, which is the chaff, is they would take this window, they would beat the grain and then they would take this little winnowing fork and throw it in the air. The lighter chaff would blow away and then the grain that they would sell and make cakes out of, it would hit the threshing floor. So she was like, I heard that they're going to be there tonight. My first question is, how did you know that? That's my first question, but I'm going to go on. I know maybe she had a tracker on her or something. I don't know. And then so she says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go take a bath. Uh, shout out to baths. <laughs> I want you to go put on some perfume, your, your best smelling bath and body works. I want you to bathe yourself in some lotion so you don't have any crustiness. I want you to do that. Then I want you to take off your widow garments because you were mourning a former season, and now I want you to walk into a new season. It's hard to enjoy the new season when you're mourning the last one. And he says, I want you to go and put on your lovely dress. Then I want you to creep into the room. And then once you creep into the room, I want you to see where he's laying at. I want you to hide yourself securely. And then after he's ate and drank enough, I want you to go over, lift up the, the, his, his presumable garment, and I want you to uh, lay at his feet until he wakes up. Now, I read that and I was like, what in the Tyler Perry lifetime <laughs> stuff is going on here? I was like, what, what is happening? Right. Hide securely. Like what's going on? I would say so. So let me get this right, Naomi. You want your daughter in law to risk her reputation and you want her to lay down in the threshing floor where scholars tell us that prostitutes would offer sexual favors to wealthy men. Are y'all not hearing me? That's what you want me to do. Like like. So what you're seeing here is a per. Oh, watch it. Everybody good. OK, just a purse. All right. So what you're seeing here is a person that we can describe as having ulterior motives. Yeah. 
She sincerely wanted Ruth to have a happily ever after, but she also wanted, she also had a financial incentive for telling her to do all this. She wanted her legacy to be established, her finances to be taken care of. In other words, she was willing to put Ruth in a place of danger so that she could experience a season of security and safety. Are y'all seeing, are y'all hearing me? So, so by sending Ruth down there, it's at the expense of her reputation because people think she's a prostitute. Also, people would, it would leave her vulnerable because what if this man Boaz is not of, not of integrity that they thought she was? Uh, on top of that, what about her safety? What if somebody tries to take advantage of her? What I'm saying is that her plan was dangerous, provocative, and filled with sexual overtones. In other words, she was willing to put her daughter in danger while she remained in a place of safety. Let me just say, what if she uncovers the wrong man's legs? Presumably they have people working in there, right? And I wonder this, did she take some time to pray about her plan? Here's the thing. A lot of us think that prayer is just pulling a lever and getting what we want from God. Prayer is actually a place where you surrender your will to his. It's a place where you say, God, not my will, but your will be done. Because usually when it's my plan, it always unravels. But when I do it your way and you're overseeing the process, usually you bring about a better solution than I could have thought on a thought of on my own. On top of that, uh, let me just suggest if she had prayed, I think she would have got some clarity on that. She was really putting this lady in a vulnerable position. And so what she is, what I believe is happening is she's too attached to the outcome. She wants this particular outcome so bad that she's willing to do anything possible, get this, in order to secure the bag. One thing about our leadership team is we get together on Wednesday night, on on Monday nights. We are exhausted when we meet at 732. I'm a morning person. And so I get my coffee. I'm ready to go by 558 in the morning. I'm ready. Don't text me during that time because that's what I'm spending some time with Jesus. But when we get together at seven o'clock, we're usually worn out. But before we even start, we begin with a prayer. We begin with what Ignatius of Loyola, who was a 17th century theologian and priest, he calls it the prayer of indifference. The prayer of indifference doesn't mean that we don't care about what happens. It means that we are indifferent to anything that is not the will of God. See, because a lot of us are so attached to outcomes that we've already decided in our mind what God wants us to do before we even take time to pray to see if it's something that he wants us to do. And it's hard to hear the voice of God. It's hard to hear him give you direction to the scripture when you've already decided what you want him to say. And so we pray this prayer of indifference and we say, God, we're not too attached to any particular outcome. In fact, do it the way you want to do it, Lord. If you want to see a prayer of indifference, all you have to do is look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the scriptures. They sit there and they say, they tell Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not going to bow down and worship you. I'm not going to worship you. We're not going to lift up a voice. We only, we only pray to Yahweh. And if you throw, you can throw us in the fire and our God will deliver us. Here's the prayer of indifference. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. What they were saying is that we are not too attached to the outcome that we don't give God room to be God. Oh, y'all are not talking about talking. All all I'm saying is that we have to get together and we pray this prayer of indifference. So so she's already decided on what she wants to do. Now, here's the thing that blows my mind. Ruth agrees with the plan. Do y'all see that? She doesn't agree. She is like, yeah, I'll do whatever you say. Now, I was like racking my brain. I was like, Ruth, don't you know that this can potentially tarnish your reputation? 
Don't you know that this can get you potentially assaulted? Don't you know, Ruth, that you're putting yourself in harm's way? Like, like, why would you go along with your mother's plan? And then I realized that this was the first time in the passage that she had received approval from Naomi outside of actually doing something for her. So other times when she was like, like think, think, think about their history for a second, right? But Naomi tried to run Ruth away three times. Three times she tried to run her away when she was going back to Bethlehem. On top of that, after she professes her love to her, she tells her, she actually gives her the silent treatment. Then on top of that, when they go into the field to get the harvest, she gives her a four-word reply. Do you see what I'm saying, church? Like the relationship between Ruth and Naomi is not as beautiful as it's often depicted. Ruth, however, has low self-esteem, in my opinion, because she's an ethnic minority living in a dominant culture context. And what she's getting from Naomi is the affirmation that she's always desired. Do you see that? She's getting like like Naomi on her own volition finally comes up with a plan to care for Ruth. And I think she did that because she was like, you know what? I'll take whatever whatever approval I can get. And here's an IG caption for somebody in here. She desperately wanted to drink from the springs of approval, even though the waters were contaminated. You see that she like a lot of us like we want to we will we fish and fish and fish for compliments. We fish for approval, but you don't know that when you're fishing for approval, a lot of time that lake, stream, and pond is actually contaminated with pride. But if you really want approval, Jesus is saying, come unto me. If you're thirsty for approval, come unto me because I will build in you a river of living water that will begin to pour out to you so that you know that you are secure in the Lord. Here it is. Here it is. This is, this is what I want you to see. Naomi really only showed her kindness to Ruth when she was doing something for her, when she was doing something for her. Like there's a rabbi uh, that had a conversation with this young man. And he said, young man, the young man said, oh, you know what? I really love fish. He said, oh, you love fish? Well, let me ask you a question. If you love fish, uh, why did you take it out of the water? And why did you kill it and scale it and flour it and fry it, then eat it with Louisiana hot sauce? Tell me why you did that. And the student was really stunned, and the student was like, uh, he didn't know what to say. And the rabbi said, you don't love fish. You, you, you don't love fish. What you love is what that fish can do for you. And a lot of try. the truth is, is that some of us are just like Naomi. We only love people because of what they can do for us. We, lo- we just have a cute word for it called uh, networking now right? It's all transactional. I just want to get what I can get. And some of you are just like Ruth in this place. You long to be loved for who you are because you've noticed that friends only show love to you when they need something. Acquaintances only text when they have a problem and your heart aches and longs to be loved by someone, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Let me just tell you, sometime God will call you to love selfish people. And I'm going to tell you why. Here's, here's an IG caption, and you might want to take a picture of this. Sometime God calls us to love selfish people because it gives us a glimpse of what he feels like being in a relationship with us. You can leave it up. That's what he's saying, is that a lot of times we are self-seeking, self-serving. We want something from God, but we don't necessarily want God. We want what he can provide, but we don't want to 
alter or change our lives because of him. Are y'all hearing me today, church? It's quiet. It's quiet. Am I not, I'm not preaching that good? Let me, let me work on it. Let me work on it. Let me, I'm going to get better. Let me get better. I promise you. I'm give, give me some reps. I promise you I'll get better. What, what, what Ruth, Ruth is being self-seeking, and the truth is, is that all of us are self-seeking in that regard. We all do these very same things. So listen, let's get back to the narrative. So this is what happened. Now listen, it seems like I don't like this plan one bit, it's, but, but Ruth is like, no, we're going to trust God to make it work. So she makes all the preparations. She takes a bath. She does her hair. She does her makeup. She, she puts on the bath and body works and all that, and, and she's like creeping through the dark. She's just creeping, and her heart is pumping. She's probably second-guessing the plan, and then she breaks into the barn, and then she finally takes her place, and she's just looking at Boaz, and Boaz, she's just being quiet. Now, she notices that Boaz is pleased with the harvest. She's, he's pleased with his food. He's pleased with his drink, and, and, she, and she sees that he finally falls asleep, and, he, and then she creeps over. She pulls up his garment, and then she just lays down at his feet. <laughs> And then Boaz wakes up in verse 9 and says something that any of us would ask, who is that? Who's this at my feet like that? And the, the, the fact that he's able to process this in real time is bananas, right? She says to him, before he can even finish his word, spread your wings over your servant, for you are our redeemer, guardian of our family. This is a bold statement. Now, some of y'all are like, why is this a bold statement? Well, because in the ancient Near East, a man would cover a woman, and that means that he wants to start a, a symbolic or establish a relationship with her. In other words, he wants to marry her. So what she's doing, in essence, is she's proposing to Boaz. Do you see that there in the text? Some of y'all are like, ain't no way I'm proposing to no man. Shout out, ladies, shout out to you. Hold out. Hold, don't do it. Don't do it. No way. Ain't no way I'm getting on my knee and proposing to this man. But she does it. And, re- and th- like I said, it ma- the fact that this man was able to respond in-, in-, in real time is really amazing. But what you get to see in this passage is someone with pure motives. That's what you see. And so the first thing he says is, he, said, he says, God bless you, my daughter. Something to that essence. This is, this is what I want you to get. Somebody that has pure motives are aware of your vulnerability and your fear of rejection. That's my first point. They're aware of your vulnerability and the fear of rejection. You see that? Now, now get this. Ruth put herself out there like that. She came out of her shell. She breaks into the man's barn. She could have been charged with breaking and entering. He could have called her crazy. He could have told her, no, you need to exchange some sexual favors for me to do what you want to do. He could have yelled at her. He could have have called her a stalker. And can you imagine the type of punishment that Ruth would have gotten in Bethlehem as a Moabite for for doing something like this? He, He knows. Like, he's looking at her like she could have been in some real trouble. But you know what he did? He spoke gently to her. And someone that has great motives, they're going to speak gently to us. And so another thing is what we see is he knew that she had a fear of rejection just like any of us. And let's be honest, we all have a fear of rejection. That's why we act phony like we do. That's why we uh, live scripted lives. That's why we only post our highlights on Instagram. That's why we're constantly trying to please people. Many of us will change and comport our personality just so we can please people. Right. Like, like you can see this all the time. You can see when somebody is, is, is struggling with the fear of rejection because they're they're always looking for reassurances. But someone with poor, pure motives is deeply aware of the fear that you have and they commend you on your vulnerability. 
He begins to compliment her character. He says, like, yo, what you did was great. On top of that, you could have had somebody that was much more rich, much more young, but you chose me, someone who was actually older than you, almost your dad's age, to be in a relationship with. And the reason she did it is because she was trying to establish Naomi and Elimelech's line. And so what I want you to see is that this is what we can describe as an other-centered love. This is not based upon her comfort or her preference or any of those things. It's based upon her establishing someone else's relationship. And she's just like, listen, this is great. He's like, yo, I love you. What you're doing is great. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. But here's another thing that someone with pure motives will do. Someone with pure motives will tell you the whole story. Look, look what happens here. Boaz is a man of integrity. He wants to deeply be the kinsman redeemer and marry them. But he says there's someone closer to you. Right. So a lot of times we don't tell the whole truth because we don't want to disappoint people or we don't want to make ourselves look bad. Is that right, church? Y'all not hearing that? Like, like, like a person with pure motives will tell you the whole story. A lot of times we just tell all out lies. We just tell lies. We tell some of us like to call it half truths. Right. Half truth is when like you're like, oh, I don't feel like going, I'm not feeling good. I don't want to go to work. Well, that's not why you called out. Like, like you, you told the boss you couldn't make it in, but the truth was is that you just didn't feel like being there today. That's a half truth. Or what we do a lot of times is something called evasive lies. You ever did that before? Where, some, where you'll ask somebody a question and rather than them answering it, they'll just evade the question. You'll be like, hey, who spent this money? You'll be like, man, this weather is so nice out. I mean, this weather, this weather is beautiful. I'm guilty of that with my wife. My wife be like, who? Where you get that new, where you get them shoes at? I'm like, oh, baby. <laughs> The Lord is so, ain't the Lord good? You know, let me tell you what I was learning in my devotional today. I learned that. We just switched subjects, right? Or my favorite, the little white lie. When somebody gets a haircut and you like, mm. And they're like, how you like my haircut, girl? You be like, oh, girl, you, you look beautiful. And you just struggling with it. Or they give you a fruitcake for Christmas and you got to smile and act like you're happy about it. That's an innocent lie. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. But Boaz is saying a person of character and integrity is going to be honest with you about, get this, their intentions and the totality of the story. They're not going to hold details. A lot of us hold out details because we really don't want to be held accountable for some of the decisions that we've made. That's what he's saying. So it's an exaggeration, right? And so sometimes, and sometimes we tell exaggerated stories because we're trying to uh, look better or evoke sympathy. But let me just tell you, if you have to cover some portion of your story that paints you in a negative picture or needing an advantage, you know that you don't have pure motives. If you've got to lie, it's not pure motive. So get this. So she stays there till night. He says all this good stuff to her. He promises that the next day she's like, hey, here, listen, stay here. I'm going to give you some grain so you won't go home empty handed. And then he's like, yo, I'll explain what happens. Now, this is what I want you to get. So now, Ruth, I want you to know this. I want you to notice this. She deviates from Naomi's plan. Naomi tells her to go down there and that Boaz will tell her what to do. But she ends up telling Boaz what he should do. He says to Boaz, you need to be uh, my kinsman redeemer. That's not what Ruth told her to do. I mean, that's not what Naomi told her to do. And so when her mother-in-law asks her what, what happened, she doesn't feel the need to tell her that Ruth and not Naomi was right. In other words, she doesn't have to take credit for being right. Are y'all hearing me today, church? Someone has, when you know somebody has pure motives, when they don't always have to be right. 
Like a lot of us have this incessant desire to be right all the time. And I get it because we live in the type of culture where if you're right, it inflates your self-esteem. But if you're wrong, it deflates it. But, but sometimes you just have to care about the result more than you care about somebody being right. Are y'all hearing me? Like being right is not the goal. Being right with God is the goal. Because he, sometimes you just need to say, God, I don't have to take credit for this because ultimately you did it. You were the one that put breath in my lungs, air or blood in my veins. You were the one that gave me the ability to think this stuff through in real time. I need to give you credit for this anyway, not me. It's not my ingenuity. And I just want to let somebody know in here today, it was not you that pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not you. It's, you can't take credit for your career success. You were in the right place at the right time, and somehow God in his providence blessed you with the ability and the know-how to do it. You didn't do it on your own. Some of us are struggling with this whole notion of being a demigod because we think that we create our own path and make our own pattern. It wasn't. It is by the grace of God that you're here. He protected you from danger seen and unseen. He protected you on the highway. He allowed you to wake up in the morning. You can't take credit for the story that God is writing in your life. Too many of us do that. And Boaz just continues on. He's like, I'm going to take care of you. Ruth doesn't feel the obligation to do that. So this is what you see. You see a a comparing contrast. And you can play the keys. Uh, You see a comparing contrast of somebody with pure motives and someone with not so pure motives. But the truth is, is that this sermon really is about the motives we believe God has. Because a lot of us really don't believe that God has pure motives. We believe, if we're honest, that every time we have tried to follow God and do it his way, it has not worked out for us. Like, how can God be good. Last time I trusted God, I ran into all type of issues, all type of problems. But if you want to know if God is good, all you have to do is look to his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, I don't want you to work harder. Come unto me, all those who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is not punishing you for your sin, though he does discipline his children. He's already punished his son on the cross of Calvary for you. He's poured out the wrath of God on you. Do you know that God left the riches of heaven to come down to the poverty of earth on your behalf? He did it for you. I don't know if you know, but Jesus was very comfortable in heaven. He was with the Father and the Spirit hanging out, beholding each other's glory. But he decided to leave the celestial heaven and come down to the terrestrial earth and deal with the ugliest problem that we have, which is our sin which is this heart sickness that separates us from God. And no matter what we do in order to try to make ourselves right with God, we just keep on widening the gap. Jesus says that I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to uh, take on this plan to redeem them from their sin. I'm going to come down into earth and I'm going to save them out of their predicament. I'm going to take their punishment that they deserve and I'm going to put it on my account. I'm going to literally swipe my credit card with the cross of Calvary and I'm going to cover their balance. That is the gospel. And then I'm going to resurrect on Sunday morning. Old preacher would say with all power in his hand, with time in one hand and eternity in the other hand, the timeless 
woke up in the temporal. He, he trampled upon your sin so it doesn't have to have power over you. He defeated Satan and his demonic minions so that they don't have to have authority over you. And he secured your eternity on the cross of Calvary and through the resurrection. This is the gospel. And you'd be hard-pressed in order to find any other religious philosophy or thought. Here's the thing. A lot of us are looking for freedom. So we just tear down all these establishments. Like, like we just do what we want. Doing what you want is just another form of bondage. Because you become enslaved to your passions. You can't tell yourself not to have sex. You can't tell yourself not to eat that. You can't. But Jesus frees you. On the cross, Jesus freed you of your shackles. And if you're wondering today if he's good, all you have to do is look to Christ. Look to him. Remember that song that said, before I spoke a word, I was speaking over you. Before you were even a thought. Before you were in your mother's belly, in your mother's womb. God had a plan for you. And so if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. But somebody might say, every time I've trusted you. Every time I've trusted your plan, God, and not my own, you have done nothing but let me down. If God, if you were so good, why'd you let my mother die? Why'd you let me lose that job? Why did that relationship crumble? Why am I experiencing so, many, so much hardship in life? Life is nothing but a big struggle. If you're so good and so sweet, how come life tastes so bitter sometimes? If that's you today, let me say welcome home. We're so happy you're here. Because you don't need to live a life like that. You shouldn't live your life alone, struggling over God, with, with struggling by yourself like that. You shouldn't. And can I just suggest to you that Jesus understands your struggle? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 40, verse 8. It says, I delight to do your will, O God. The author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus, so it's really saying Jesus says, I delight to do your will, O God. And the question that comes to mind is, How? How could Jesus delight in doing the will of God? Are you talking about the will of God that had him born in a backwoods town called Bethlehem? The one that exposed him to poverty. The one that scholars tell us caused his, his stepfather to die early and he had to basically care for his brothers. The same one that called his mother to be called by unsightly names. The same will that got him ostracized from the religious intelligentsia. The, 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 the one that would get him taken up on Trump charges and he would eventually die on the cross. You talking about that will? The one that got his hands pierced and his nail and his legs impaled? You talking about that will? How can you delight to do a will that sends you to the cross? Here's what I want you to know. I think Jesus was able to go to the cross like that and delight in the will of God because he knew that God the Father had a bigger plan in mind. And I know that some of you right now feel crippled in your soul by this pain, but I want to let you know that your pain does not have to have the final say. It doesn't have to have the final word. The cross, the resurrection has the final word. And if you're wondering if God loves you, all you have to do is look to Jesus. I shared this with you before, but 2010, my, mo my mother passed away. She had a lengthy fight with brain cancer. She had a funeral in North Jer in New Jersey, and then we had another one in North Carolina, and we buried her in North Carolina next to my grandfather. And I remember when she was laying in the casket, man, she was so beautiful. She had the little garland on. She was, she looked amazing. And um, 
I remember when Sarah was by my side and man, I was just like, man, grief is not linear. So I'm going to feel this at Christmas and I'm going to feel this during the holidays. And I felt it during the launch and I'm going to feel it all the time. And I've been working, I've been working through it in counseling and therapy and talking to the Lord, but sometimes it just stings. You know what I'm saying? And I remember when the pallbearers were closing the casket really, really slowly. I was like, would y'all go ahead? Jesus. And they were closing real slowly. It was, it was awful. I remember. But I remember the Lord saying to me right at that moment, son, I know this hurts. And you're going to cry tears. But I want you to know that the grave does not have the final say. And I just want to let you know that you may be going through the crucifixion of Sunday. But the crucifixion on Friday, but the resurrection of Sunday morning is coming. That I need you to put your pain in context. Because maybe your pain is evidence that you are making progress. Maybe you're going in the right direction. Your pain doesn't have to have a final say on your life. This is the gospel, family. And the worship team can come.